I want to thank our amazing sponsor today, the Academy Therapy Wisdom. If you're a therapist, counselor, social worker, or in any helping profession, this is for you because this is specifically designed to elevate your practice. The Academy Therapy Wisdom is more than just an educational platform. It's a vibrant community. They offer an expansive range of trauma training courses, workshops, and seminars led by some of the most esteemed experts in our field. We're talking about instructors like Janina Fisher, who brings a wealth of knowledge on trauma, Frank Anderson on trauma and spirituality, Deirdre Fay, who specializes in attachment theory, Darren Young, an expert in multicultural counseling, and Julian Taylor, who dives deep into neurobiology and memory reconsolidation. But what sets the Academy of Therapy Wisdom apart is its commitment to practical, real-world application. You're not just absorbing theories. You're learning from real-world scenarios and case studies that you can directly apply in your practice. Plus, they have a growing selection of self-care programs just for you. And because you're a valued listener to this podcast, the Academy of Therapy Wisdom is offering a free gift of two teaching dialogues between Dr. Frank Anderson and Dr. Janina Fisher. So go to therapywisdom.com slash trauma podcast. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Go to therapywisdom.com slash trauma podcast or click the link in the show notes to discover what the Academy of Therapy Wisdom has in store for you. The Center for Healing Trauma and Attachment, or CADA, founded by the visionary Doreen Hills, is dedicated to providing innovative and compassionate treatment for those seeking profound healing. CADA's mission is clear, to offer driven, passionate, and cutting-edge therapeutic approaches that not only heal trauma, but also address the needs of the soul. They believe that true healing goes beyond symptom management and is about restoring wholeness. So whether you're an individual seeking therapy, a provider, a therapist looking for training, or a member of the community in need of support, CADA offers quality and affordable trainings tailored to your unique needs. To learn more, visit chtainc.org. That's chtainc.org. All right, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson. My mission is to help trauma therapists be their incredible selves, to be human, to be real, not just a clinician. I'm a big believer in who we are is more important than what we know. And this requires cultivating authenticity, genuineness, and vulnerability, and that requires intention. You can learn more about my courses and workshops by going to thetraumatherapistproject.com. That's thetraumatherapistproject.com. Let's get started. All right, so here we go. So five, four, three, <coughs> two, and one. All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am very excited to have as my guest today, Dr. Kyra Bobinette. Kyra, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Awesome. So Kyra is the CEO and founder of Fresh Try, a cutting-edge neuroscience-based health behavior change platform developed with and for Walmart Associates. She's an award-winning public health physician that specializes in healthcare innovation, technology-enabled behavior change, behavior neuroscience, health disparities, and population health management. With an MD from UCSF and an MPH from Harvard, Dr. Bavanetz is also an adjunct professor at Stanford School of Medicine and Dr. B.J. Fogg's Behavior Design Lab. Dr. Bavanetz's best-selling book, Well-Designed Life, has been called a must-have tool for health innovators worldwide. Dr. Bavanetz, welcome. 
Thank you so much. So not too shabby with the in the bio department, <laughs> in, the, in the biography department. Um, before we could go in here, share with the listeners where you're from originally and where you are currently. Yeah. So I, my body was born in Iowa City, Iowa. Um, I am a mixed race between Bohemian Czech and my mom is a Ojibwe, Minnesota Ojibwe. So that area of the country, <laughs> that area of the country. And then we bounced around from to LA to DC. And then in my formative years, I was in Oklahoma riding a horse bareback, barefoot. So that's kind of how I finished out my childhood. Very interesting. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say my body was born. <laughs> I mean, that that's very interesting. And it, it's obviously it's a conscious choice, but say more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, as I get on with understanding this world um, and appreciating how illusory my brain is. Um, I try to do little things to de-identify with the ego or egoic kind of structures. And so that might be my sort of natural way of, of just appreciating the physicality that happened, but also realizing that this whole journey is just a whole, whole much else, a whole lot else. I appreciate that. All right. So you've got a lot going on here. How I want to say, how did all this start? But yeah, how how did you get into this field, this interest? This obviously, it's a passion and a mission for you. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, probably growing up with really messed up parents was part of it. I'm sure a lot of the listeners here can relate that you know my mom was had PTSD from Indian boarding school and also uh, you know sexual abuse and physical abuse in the foster care system for her childhood. And then my dad was, you know, sort of undiagnosed, just had rage issues and would smash his hand through tables. And, you know, so while he wasn't an alcoholic, I would say he might be, you know, akin to like a dry alcoholic um, and somebody who just had no control over his emotions. And so a child like that, you know, I became much more interested in psychology. When I went to medical school, my pretense was to be a cancer researcher, but then I, I kind of fell in love with psychiatry, but not the, the field of psychiatry as it was being practiced, but, you know, PTSD, for example, at the VA, you know, medical center where I did my psychiatry rotations and I did a fellowship after that with at-risk youth. I started a program for at-risk youth coming back from prison. These were like chronic violent offender youth. So I, I think I always had a penchant for, you know, how do people change and why don't they, even if they want to? I appreciate sharing that, but what an intense cauldron to be, to be raised <laughs> in. I mean, come on, it's here. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, I, you know, your mother and her background, very intense, devastating. Your father mm -hmm. had his own issues. Mm -hmm. And yet, look, not everyone who's brought up in that environment goes on to do what you've done. It goes on to, I mean, there's an intensity there. There's a passion there. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what was going on for you such that you're like, okay, how did you even get to the point where you're able to succeed mm, yeah. to the degree that you did? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I was, as I was writing the book, the, the, the chapter on uh, trauma and um, those kinds of things with the brain science that we're going to talk about. I was uh, curious. I just did my ACE score for the first time and I scored a seven, which is pretty good. 
<laughs> in terms of heft and risk and and burden. Um, I think that just my my noticing uh, coming to this world, I think that I just had a noticing a metacognitive state that was very solid. And I also think that I had a really intense sense of compassion, you know, mm. and it, it first was with animals and bugs and nature, you know, nature kind of raised me. And then I issued that to my parents, you know, and, and I think my own pain, my own suffering, I was definitely depressed in junior high, high school for sure. And into college, I remember just being kind of catatonic on my bed, unable to go to school. You know, I was all dressed and backpack and everything, and mm -hmm. I just couldn't move, you know? And so that got me curious as to, you know, what, what is this? How can I, how can I cure myself? How can I heal myself? And I think by, by just following that thread, I got mm -hmm. interested in, oh, wait, this is happening to everybody else too. You know, mm -hmm. we all know what to do, but we won't do it. And that was super, like from a scientific perspective, that just kind of grabbed my attention. And, and I've been doing it for 30 years now. So let's talk about that. How did yeah. that unfold? And, and what did it unfold to and into? So, you know, to me, there's been, you know, various hints and clues along the path. And then that kind of built a puzzle that that came into more fulsome, uh, you know, fidelity and, and, and focus. And so I would say it's a moments, you know, my mom, of course, PTSD being raised by a PTSD parent is a whole experience unto itself, you know, lots of suicidality, lots of like, you know, erratic, um, emotional landscapes. Um, and then of course, you know, I, I just wanted to rise above it and be a scientist and kind of like push all that emotional stuff away. Mm -hmm. uh, went to medical school and immediately started volunteering with at-risk youth, incarcerated youth. My dad had been to prison in federal prison when I was in college uh, on embezzlement charges. So like just a lot of just disruption in my family. Um, and I think that I just got really curious about, you know, these youth would say, they would swear up and down when they were in juvenile hall. I want to change. I don't want to be, I don't want to run the streets anymore. I don't want to be in a gang anymore. And I believe them, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was, and I, I might've been a sucker, but I believed them. I was like, this kid really wants to change. And the second they get out, the day they get out, I'm at their court date. I'm like super excited to work with them, get them plugged into school, that kind of thing. And they ditch me. And not only do they ditch me, I go to their house to knock on the door at the you know, agreed upon time. And they were hiding below the windows, you know, to avoid me. And I'm like, what is this? You know, like this, this person who I was a whole other person is now a whole other person. I'm mm -hmm. seeing this other side of them that doesn't want to go to school, that doesn't want to be a good, you know, citizen that, that, that wants to go run with his boys. The second I leave, mm -hmm. he's going to have his boys come by and pick him up. And so that kind of despair, like discrepancy. And I saw it in my patients too, you know, patients would, yeah, yeah, doc, I'll, I'll take my meds or I'll, I'll test my blood sugar or I'll eat healthy and exercise. And then I either wouldn't hear from them again, or they would come back and they were just like all, you know, head hung low and, and shameful, you know, about themselves because they had failed at the thing that they had promised to do that, that we had agreed upon that was mm -hmm. so, you know, feasible and so small and, and just even a small step. So I got super curious why people just stopped. We're not able to show up for themselves. So, I mean, I think a lot of us, I think might think, well, some of those people are clearly, maybe they they're lying and they don't want to change, but a lot of them probably do. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's going on? 
So to me, the big sort of aha was finding the neuroscience that that underpinned this, you know, because forever we've known it's it. I don't like the term learned helplessness, but there's a tremendous amount of knowledge in, you know, animals and humans not acting in our own best interest and, and the way that trauma and depression, those kinds of states and addiction, you know, really set that up. Mm-hmm. And so or does it proceed? And then, you know, are they a handshake? So I was always curious about learned helplessness, you know, this kind of stasis, this stuckness that was going on. And for me, the big aha was in my first book, I was just doing research on motivation. And I looked at um, the neuroscience behind motivation. And there was this very, very early study or two around how the habenula, which is a new area I'd never heard of. It's like half a centimeter in your thalamus, um, super, super tiny area of the brain was actually operant in suppressing one's motivation. So that was clue number one. Clue number two is that there was a separate study that showed on fMRI that when somebody thinks they failed at something or they become risk averse, the habenula lights up. And so I kind of put, you know, the chocolate and peanut butter together in that moment. And I was like, wow, like this is significant. And basically those were like two, you know, uh, pieces of the puzzle that then all of the inter- intermittent puzzle pieces are now being filled in. So now the picture is much more fulsome. It's much more developed in terms of the habenula basically being the most powerful behavioral controller that has ever been found. So how does one now the habenula is impacted by trauma? What is it, it, it has, off? it has, it has like a whole set of ins and out, you know, inputs and outputs so we can unpack that a bit but you know this is where the research is really hot you know finding you know every every month is a new habenula finding and so it's the the picture is starting to get developed and it's actually quite complex so okay so what is your focus what is your mission regarding this are you yeah work, yeah go ahead yeah so to me the paradigm shift became how do i deal with the failure being the tripwire in the habenula that then shuts down this motivation. So in the case of the youth, when they were incarcerated, they had, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy, they had all their needs met, that kind of thing. The second they got on the streets, they felt like a failure compared to society, a lot of comparison thinking, and there was nothing there to manage their failure, their sense of failure um, from the past or even the current. If If they're avoiding me knocking on the door, that's a failure moment too. And mm-hmm. so all these habenula, I call them habenula hits, are significant. And clinically, that is where our focus should be. As clinicians, that's what we have to manage. Either we have to protect or put in prevention or prophylaxis on failure, because the failure is inevitable. It's not if, it's when. Mm-hmm. And it's often subconscious. And then the second aspect is what is our recovery plan? You know, what do we implant in that relationship? as the client leaves the door, the patient leaves the door of like, and if this doesn't work, it's not your fault, you know, protecting them and guarding them and then having a callback mechanism. And then of course, there's a lot of, you know, really great training about reframing um, that of course is very active in in trauma-informed therapy and those kinds of things. So I think that to me, what I would like to do is dial up everybody's acute awareness of, and then, you know, creativity in their, um, therapeutic environment around failure management really and failure neutralization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It brings a whole, what you just said brings a shines a whole different light on the transition process. And I think talking about 
you know, young kids who are incarcerated is, is a great example because obviously the, 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 the contexts are so different, right? When you're talking to yeah. them in that environment, they're there, you're working with them in that environment. You're, you're, you, you serve as a, almost a different purpose than when they get mm-hmm. out, they get home, they're crouching down. Yeah. So what do therapists need to know? How does this play into what they maybe could learn to do? Yeah, I think that, you know, what I what I would say as a self-critique in my career is that I went the direction of the mainstream in terms of um, performative approaches. And what I mean by that is goal setting and tracking against that goal and all of that stuff in order to make something doable and feasible. And so I was guilty of smart goals and challenges and competitions in certain contexts and, um, you know, being able to measure your progress, all those kinds of things. And I think that has pervaded the industry of healthcare and, and, and behavioral care um, at large. And so what I think that I now understand, <clears throat> excuse me, um, hold on a second. So I think what I now understand is that in the field that we are in, we are overusing performative approaches like that instead of iterative approaches, because iteration is the, is the way around the habenula. Iterators never fail. You know, if I set up the expectation in therapy, in the therapeutic relationship that we're here to iterate, all that matters is you finding what works for you. And when something doesn't work for you, you know, you don't, you don't um, claim it as your own. It's just something, it's like a shirt you tried on in a store that never, you'll never think about again, you know? So having that type of paradigm shift is really, really important as we approach the, this therapeutic environment in order to help people with this failure issue. So iteration in, in terms of shifting, changing, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of different categories of iteration and this is something I'm unpacking in the book, you know, so there's, you know, what are your expectations? You know, what are your, uh, what's the time of day that you're going to be doing these things? So there's, there's different dials of behaviors that we can play with. And one of the sort of rigidities of CBT, for example, has been that it is so prescriptive and same thing with habit design uh, as another corollary in healthcare, these things that are like, the, the intention is well of, you know, let's find something that you can, you can do. But then if I make it so small that it's sort of dumb, easy to do, but then you don't do it, guess what you do? You indict yourself. Mm-hmm. I can't even do one pushup. I can't even do one deep breath when I'm angry. I can't even, you know, like the, the mind's tendency, especially in the anhedonic and depressive state and traumatized state, so much negativity bias towards the self that, you know, the habenula is just kind of like this little jewel thief. It just, it goes off. We don't feel it as a physical sensation. We don't see it because our prefrontal cortex just fills in is like, you're, you're the worst person on the planet. You're bad. And so that, that kind of stuff, knowing that, that that needs to be designed before the person leaves the door Mm -hmm. and also focusing them differently on, you know, this is what works for you. Anything that matters is what works for you. And when it doesn't, it's not a failure. You know, it's just move on, iterate. What, you know, what did, what did that teach you about what you needed? Well, I, I'm not somebody who likes to meditate in the morning. Okay. Maybe I'll try it at night. 
or maybe I'll try it with friends, or maybe I'll try it just on the weekends. Like there's all kinds of little ways that people can get creative with what works for them and Mm -hmm. get a tighter and tighter fit. And then the Mm -hmm. other thing that I think is um, not, as far as I know, not being communicated or, or discussed in the therapeutic environment is this is only temporary. You know, that these, these habits, these, these strategies uh, are with you for a reason, a season or a lifetime, right? Very few marriages, you know, and marriages that last, you know, in terms of getting married to something that works for you, because we're evolving, we're, we're that will change you just by doing it, right? So a practice, a CPT practice, or a particular understanding will has a shelf life, and we just don't know what the shelf life expiration date is. But setting that expectation up of, hey, this will work for a while. We'll see. And we'll just you, you and I will sit side by side, and we'll kind of watch it, you know, fall apart. And some of the signs are predictable, like you start to be a hypocrite. Uh, but when you see that hypocrisy, that's a natural state of the fraying of mm. this habit in your life. Don't freak out. Um, wow, fascinating. I can't wait to continue <laughs> this. Really, we're speaking with Dr. Kyra Bobinette. I want to pause here for a second to thank our sponsors. Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever ever you need it. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. Going Inside is a new podcast on a mission to help you heal from trauma and connect with your authentic self. Hosted by licensed trauma therapist John Clark, this show explores trauma healing through the lens of internal family systems therapy with detours into EMDR, somatic experiencing, and much more. Tune in for enlightening guest expert interviews, immersive solo deep dives, real therapy sessions, and soothing guided meditations. Head on over to johnclarktherapy.com slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. Once again, head on over to johnclarktherapy.com forward slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. So what I'm getting, Kyra, is with this, these iterative changes in a sense, this, it's a paradigm shift. And it's almost as if it sounds to me like you, you instead of constructing this solid, uh, res- almost restrictive set of rules, prescriptive set of rules, you're creating opportunities for more wins, right? Okay, yeah. this didn't work. But this this might or this might or this giving an opportunity for more wins. To me, it sounds pretty exciting. So using that example, and I want to start talking about the book more specifically. But if we go back to that 
that kid who's incarcerated that image of him hiding behind the, 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 the couch, whatever, to barely see you. What might have, how might you have applied this uh, paradigm shift so that that didn't happen for this kid? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the sort of, I learned to de-shame them ahead of time. Like I, I kind of sprayed them down with de-shame spray. I said, <laughs> okay, look, look, like if you find yourself avoiding me, you know, just try to lower the amount of time that you avoid me to then come back because wow. it's, it's the part of you that doesn't feel confident. It's the part of you that doesn't feel good about yourself, like, and let him play out and let, let him do his thing. But there's another part of you that's steering the ship and you, that part of you is going to come back. So just mm. implanting that call back, you know, it's like, it's like if I have, you know, I have a puppy and, and just building that we can't let her off leash because her breed just takes off. Um, but building in that understanding and that, and that sort of algorithm of if this happens, then don't freak out, just come back as soon as possible mm-hmm. or do the littlest thing, text me or whatever the case may be. And just being able to kind of understand what's going on in his brain that his abenula is on, you know, I, my focus is how to reframe any failure that he's thinking about himself and give him the antidote to that in my communications. I love it. I love it. All right. So let's talk about this book, The Well-Designed Life. Why did you write it? I wrote it because I kept doing keynotes on human behavior and even the habenula. And everybody was saying, oh, my, my audience was like, where can I learn more? And I was like, go to my next keynote. Like I, I didn't have anything. So it gave me a chance to really say, here are the most important things you should know about human behavior and the brain. And it's like a toolkit for all of that. So that's, that's really what it was by, by audience demand. So people are listening to this thinking, okay, I have this, I want to change or that I want to change or this, I want to do better. Give us an example of how this might be applied. Yeah. So if I want to change, this is something I'm working with right now. So this is completely raw material. Um, I realized recently that I have a really long standing relationship with the saboteur, let's say metaphorically, that I have always invited people in my inner circle who will cut me down, who will, you know, cause me to doubt myself, who will, you know, question me, who will that kind of thing. And I'm reproducing that because my father was so hard on me, you know, there, there was kind of like a you know, defiance that was built in me of like, no, I'm not. So when he would say, you're a loser, you're a failure, you will never amount to anything. There was a kind of paradoxical response in my being. So I, you know, I deeply internalized this and then have been recreating this through, you know, I can name the names of the people who I have hired to do that job for me. And so now what I'm trying to do is break that habit. I'm trying to do something else in terms of, you know, having more support in my world instead of the, um, the person who's cutting me down. And so I confronted the person who I have enlisted in that role. I told them what I'm working on. I am, you know, actively saying, setting boundaries with that person in terms of how they have treated me in the past. And then I'm also leaning into inviting and getting more habitual with, you know, supportive friends, um, you know, I have an executive coach, those kinds of people in order to flush my system of this old habit. So I think that that to me, it's, it's 
you know, what is your, what is your ceremony and what's your ritual? You know, like ceremony is like the big aha, you know, the retreat that you go to or the, the sort of intensive, you go to rehab, whatever the case may be. Uh, maybe you have an inpatient experience, like, and I don't mean ceremony in like a, um, you know, it always has to be good. It can be quite unpleasant, you know, but, huh. but that, but that depth of dismantling the current rhythm, you know, like, like hitting the ground, you know, like, you know, or choosing to disrupt yourself, then you have the chance for habit formation. So the software we built is all about habit formation. There's a certain way that happens in the brain. And the reason why habit formation is significant is that it's the only currency that the brain uses besides trauma to institute long-term change. It is, it is the currency of long-term change in the brain. Because unless you reach a state of mindlessness in what you're doing, you know, you, when you brush your teeth, you're not thinking, okay, what do I do? You know, you, you just do it, right? Mm-hmm. That level of automaticity and mindlessness is the holy grail for something that's going to be longstanding and sustainable. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is a practice. Everything else is an experiment or an iteration, right? So, so there's these kind of like, aha, significant emotional experiences, the ceremony, I'll call it a ceremony. And then there's the daily routine, the habit, you know, how are you living day to day? How is that changing the way how you spend time or how you think about your life or any of those kinds of things? It's interesting to hear you talk about the saboteur and the role that that's played in your life, because look, you're obviously very well accomplished and you're no slouch. So I'm thinking, my God, you have a saboteur, (laughs) but in turn, do you feel like that is the reason you became so what accomplished? I mean, come on. Um, I, I attribute it to actually, if I could go there, a spiritual awakening that I had in my first year of medical school. Like, I think, you know, I always had an interest in something greater than myself and I was raised in a religion, but then I kind of went beyond that. Like, you know, I, I just expanded to all curiosity, all, all, you know, kind of what is this world about? You know, what is this higher power about? And it's different for each person. So, you know, um, to keep it at the broadest level of kind of, you know, the universe or the force or whatever the case may be, whatever somebody wants to use as a noun there. Um, to me, it's, it's following and surrendering to, um, that mystery and to that curiosity that has really kept me going in the darkest of times. So the saboteur was a stubborn one. It was a stubborn lesson because it kept coming back in different forms. I was like, I thought I got you last time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And we all have those things that kind of emerge, like I'm back, you know? And, and so we're, we're trying to, trying to, you know, uh, trying to deal with it humil- humbly when it shows back up. But yeah, I think, I don't think that there was, um, there is a direct relationship between like, when I got to uh, UCSF for medical school, I remember looking around at my class and being like, oh, we all only have one thing in common because we were such a diverse class. Um, I said, we all flog ourselves to do superhuman things. We all like, you know, berate ourselves inside of our heads, you know, and put to push ourselves this. But I now believe that that's kind of like the dirty fuel, you know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the fuel for accomplishment or, you know, risk-taking or, you know, pushing your limits, it can be love. It can be, you know, um, passion. It can be uh, curiosity. Some of these things, it can be gratitude. So I've learned over time to switch from this very toxic fuel 
to something that is more sustainable, more healthy for my my overall being. And the, and the saboteur represents another thing that's transforming from, you know, thank you, old friend. Thank you for pushing me beyond my limits. I'm now going to use love and passion and curiosity and, and connection, you know, as, as my fuel. That, that dichotomy in a sense makes a lot of sense to me because it feels like a lot of us in part know about love, but we're, it almost seems like we're so close to the, the, the trauma and this flogging, this, it almost seems like that's the, the, the low hanging fruit mm-hmm. there, there you're talking about, and again, not everyone does this, of course, but to, to utilize that, that, that healthier fuel um, is, is that, uh, uh, how do we get there? Is that such a conscious, it almost seems like it has to be an intention, a conscious mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. I can so identify with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if, what we all have to go through is just different, what we call in cancer, like debriding, you know, you're debriding the tumor, you're kind of making it smaller so that some of the other therapies can kind of take a a crack at it. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's so large, there's no way to, to really get at it, to dismantle it. So I I think it's a lifelong process, just full respect to that. Um, And also, you know, people can only deal with what they can deal with, you know, like that people are really, really intelligent. Everybody I've ever seen, no matter if they're educated or not, or they've had, you know, the highest level of trauma or not, they have a sense of what they're willing to look at and work on next, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the habenula is like the area of our brain that's like, it's the locus of aversion, everything you don't want to look at, everything you don't want to deal with, all that kind of stuff. But there's this little flicker inside of everybody of, can I, will I, you know, should I like that kind of thing. And that's where you blow on that flame and start to start to burn away some of the, the burden, uh, the massive amounts of um, trauma that they're bringing to the table. Um, so the well-designed life, who's the book for? It's for people. <laughs> You know, I wrote it for other mm-hmm. professionals, other clinicians primarily. What I find is that there's, you know, there's never a clinician who listens to this. There's always a human that listens to it and applies mm-hmm. it to themselves. And, you know, just like, you know, in Buddhism, there's this adage where the Buddha, like, test it on yourself, try it on yourself, what I'm saying. And then, you know, don't just believe me outright, you know, just to see if this is true. And so that experimentation on self tends to happen with whomever reads the book. And, and so I, I find that people who are behavior changers, either, you know, DIY to themselves or they do it professionally tend to really cherish the, the things in there because it helps to stimulate new thinking for them as well. Awesome. All right, Kyra, um, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah. So you can reach me at freshtry.com. You can also reach me on LinkedIn and also my personal website, drkyrabobinette.com, always available to anybody who wants to have a further conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so inspiring. My God, love to have you back. Thank um, you, Guy. Just really appreciate you sharing about your story and uh, just what you do, how you're helping people. I mean, that's what mm. this is about. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I want to yeah. thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the work you're doing as well. All right. Take care. All right. Take care.